normally conditioned American, been trained to kill, then to have no memory of having killed. Without memory of his deed, he cannot possibly feel guilt. Having been relieved of those uniquely American symptoms, guilt and fear, he cannot possibly give himself away. But our Raymond will remain an outwardly normal, productive, sober and respected member of the community. His brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry clean. Some folks are born, made to wait to fly. This is the Manchurian Candidate Retrospective Series from Now Playing Podcast. Why? Why is all of this being done? What have they built you to do? Hosted by the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human beings I've ever known in my life, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. You sure you want to do this? Absolutely. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. How can you talk to me this way? Listener discretion is advised. All right, dear, run along. The grown-ups have to talk. The taxman gives him the key to the land. And what the wild is nothing left for school and him. Today, we're discussing the Manchurian candidate, starring Denzel Washington. Meryl Streep, Liev Schreiber, John Voigt, directed by Jonathan Demme. This is the now-playing co-host who gets into your head with steel-toed boots and went to town, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who's into giving phone numbers the old-fashioned way, Jacob. Happy Veterans Day! I guess this is a movie that celebrates veterans. (laughs) I mean, it's about veterans. (laughs) It's pretty veteran-favorable, although I have to say, I gave you some guff about picking an election movie with last week's, This one feels far more election-centric. Yeah, it was made and released in time to actually hit the 2004 John Kerry versus second term of George Bush. They were like, we need to hit that window. That was part of the thinking in remaking this. But of course, a lot of thinking goes into remaking a movie that is over 40 years old. And some of that thinking is... Tina Sinatra gotta eat. (laughs) I noticed that name. I noticed her name as a producer. Yep. (laughs) Frank had died and she was, you know, keeping the legacy alive is I guess one way I could put it or taking whatever she inherited and seeing what it was worth. And, you know, I also think it was fortuitous that we had had this war in the Gulf 10 years ago that kind of works in the way that the Korean War does. It was a quick battle. It was perceived to be easily won and without much American casualty, and then it led to this much larger Cold War thing. I I think that's also true of the invasion of Iraq and and everything. It just, there was a symmetry in what happened in the 1950s to the 1960s that feels appropriate going from the 90s into the 2000s. I was impressed with the pedigree of people involved with this, though. I came into this not really knowing much or remembering much about it but first of all the supporting cast is full of character actors and people who've gone on to be bigger stars vera farmiga anthony mackie charles napier miguel ferrer dean stockwell jeffrey wright and ted levine i mean that's a lot of a lot of now playing favorites yeah i can't say star power i got tripped up on that and then directed by jonathan demi i didn't 
expect to see the Silence of the Lambs Oscar-winning director doing this. He wasn't actually, you would think, you know, because I think in terms of directors and their bodies of work, I'd like to follow directors. You might think that he was behind all of this, but he was actually brought in kind of late. They started with Denzel. Like, Tina Sinatra is like, we need a star first. Who has the star quality that is of caliber of my father, but maybe totally different, something modern. And so Denzel felt like, you know, he had done Courage Under Fire. He had done Glory. He has military cred, leading man cred, and yet, of course, a very different persona than Frank Sinatra. He'll bring something new and, you know, Oscar-winning talent to boot. Denzel called Jonathan Demme because they had had a good working relationship on Philadelphia. And Demme had been having trouble as of late. His projects around that time were seen, at least commercially, as not successful. He had done Beloved with Oprah. That cost a lot, didn't really connect with audiences. And then he remade the Audrey Hepburn movie Charade as Trouble with Charlie. I don't know why you would think Cary Grant is Marky Mark. (laughs) It didn't work out. They both dance? (laughs) True. So he was willing. He was game. And he brought in this screenwriter and, and they, they hashed it out and they were like, you know, we want to honor the original, but we don't want to remake it. We have to adapt it. And we have to be careful about in thinking about the Iraq war that we don't fall into easy Islamophobia. We don't want to make uh, Muslims the new communist Koreans. We need to think in terms of a new enemy. Yeah, I believe that was my question last week. Like, you're going to make this about Desert Storm and all that? Okay, is it Sodom that's going to hypnotize Denzel in this movie? Like, how are they going to do that? And and we'll discuss it, but I I think they came up with a clever way to address it. This screenwriter had done what I would consider an amazing job streamlining Tom Clancy's Some of All Fears. I think even if his movies that he's worked on aren't all great, I think he has the right ideas here to, to think about adaptation. And yeah, the the new global threat, multinational corporations, yeah, maybe. I mean, they're ahead of the game. You might instantly watch this movie and think, oh, they're doing Halliburton. Yeah, when did Halliburton become a thing? 2004 seems very early to catch on to that. When they started production on this movie, actually when they wrapped shooting of this movie, we hadn't invaded Iraq yet. So Halliburton was not signing contracts to go in there and be a thing. So they were really thinking more about Enron is, is where the mind was and corporations doing underhanded things and controlling the levers of power. Are you sure? We invaded Iraq in 03. It was before the re-election. Yeah, this movie was shot in 2002. So by the time this came out, Halliburton was in the conversation, but not when it was made. Yes, much like Manchurian Candidate original, it was foreseeing things that would become very soon, like presidents getting assassinated, much more topical and interesting. And yeah, timing it for the Kerry Bush conventions was both a good idea and a bad. I think there was a lot of anxiety and excitement about what America was going to do that election, but you're also putting that out in summer. And so this movie had to compete against Born Supremacy, iRobot, The Village, Collateral. It didn't really do very good box office. It cost a lot of money, $80 million. It made 65 here in the States. It might have broken even when they added in all the other stuff, but it just didn't do well. And I do think there was some kind of resentment in how dare you remake a classic. It didn't get a lot of awards attention. Street got a Golden Globe nomination. No Oscar love for this. That That's saying something. Meryl Streep not getting a Oscar nom for a role? How dare the Academy? Yeah, I really think she goes grocery shopping and they're like, Oscar! 
Yes. <laughs> that certainly is a reputation, and I can't think of a few things she's done that I was like, that didn't deserve it. I mean, she's good, too. She can back it up. But yeah, this movie was not proclaimed a classic then or now. And so if it's ever going to be, let's let's reevaluate. Let's see if, in fact, as I believe, this movie was on the fourth thinking about a lot of things that are much more relevant now. And that in looking back 16 years, we can see that they... Jimmy, the screenwriter, kind of knew where politics was headed. Now, as I mentioned, I saw part of this on an airplane ride home from Spain. I was having terrible, terrible claustrophobia, like almost a panic attack. And to try to take my mind off of it, this movie was playing. This was back in the day where you had to watch whatever the airplane was playing and you had to pay them for some headphones. And I watched about, I think, the last 20 minutes of this movie is all. And I barely could focus because I just wanted off the damn plane. I actually went to the movie theater. I saw it with my mom. I remember she and I both thought it was really good. And I remember being surprised that the critical love was low and that a lot of people were like, eh. Everyone was like, not as good as the original. Why did they bother? I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> went back and watched the original. And yeah, it's always been in my mind. I, I'll just... Put it out there. I even considered bringing it into the underrated book because I thought this movie didn't quite get its due back in 2004. Yeah, I know it didn't get its due for me because I didn't go see it. I Again, oh, it's a remake of some old movie. Ah, do I really want to do that? And you talked about people saying, why are they remaking a classic? I remember my dad voicing that opinion. I, I wish I could have had a chance to ask him if he'd seen this one and what he thought of it. But I remember him just going, why, why would they even dare? How dare they remake this? I had no pony in that race because I'd never seen the original, but I knew, oh, it's based on something old. But yeah, I, I had no urgency to ever go see it. Well, let's check that box now. Arnie, give him the plot. We'll get into Manchurian Candidate 2004. Sergeant Raymond Shaw returned from the first Gulf War a hero. Shaw, played by Liev Schreiber, was given the Medal of Honor for rescuing his platoon from an ambush. The war hero's deceased father was a U.S. senator, and Ray's mother Eleanor, played by Meryl Streep, now holds that Senate seat. With this political family's background and his Medal of Honor, Sergeant Shaw becomes a congressman. With his mother's help, the young congressman becomes the party's nominee for vice president. In truth, though, Shaw isn't a war hero. His heroic acts were false memories implanted in his mind. In truth, Shaw was captured along with his platoon. Their captors were executives of military contractor Manchurian Global. Scientists turn Shaw into a sleeper agent who will follow any order he's given. This is demonstrated when the scientist orders Shaw to kill one of his fellow soldiers. Private Baker, played by Anthony Mackie. Manchurian Global Scientists also used mind control to have Shaw's commanding officer nominate him for the Medal of Honor. That commanding officer is Major Bennett Marco, played by Denzel Washington. He and the other captured troops don't remember being captured, but they suffer recurring nightmares that show Shaw killing Private Baker. Also, the survivors of their squad are slowly dying under mysterious circumstances. Marco begins to investigate these happenings. He goes to New York, where he stays with Rosie a grocery store clerk who chatted Marco up on a train, even though Marco was acting more and more erratically, including cutting open his own shoulder. Marco found a small metal implant in his shoulder, but dropped it down the drain. Marco visits Shaw at his campaign headquarters, and Shaw admits he has no memory of being a hero. But he doesn't fully buy into Marco's ramblings of a conspiracy. Marco attacks Shaw, biting the congressman's back, and is taken into custody. 
but no charges are pressed as Shaw feels compassion for his old commanding officer. But Marco's biting attack bore fruit. He had bitten out Shaw's implant and traces it back to Manchurian Global. He stole that from Hannibal Lecter. That's what Hannibal did. He swallowed that pin. (laughs) Demi repeating old tricks. He takes his findings to Senator Jordan, a rival of Senator Shaw's. Jordan passes the evidence to the Shaw's to force Raymond Shaw to drop out of the presidential race. This is when Eleanor Shaw's role in the conspiracy is revealed. She uses trigger words to make Raymond obey her every order, and she orders him to murder Senator Jordan. When that murder is seen by Jordan's daughter, with whom Shaw previously had a romantic relationship, Shaw kills the woman too. Marco plans further action when his girlfriend Rosie reveals herself to be an FBI agent. Her unit had been investigating Manchurian Global, and she believes Marco's conspiracy theories. Marco again confronts Shaw, but the murder of the Jordans caused Shaw to realize what's been done to them. And we're told Shaw isn't the only sleeper agent. Senator Shaw calls Marco and gives him the trigger words and orders Marco to assassinate the presidential nominee, which would allow her son to become president. Marco follows his orders and is in position to kill the president-elect, but the new vice president knows where Marco is and blocks Marco's shot. Shaw brings his mother with them, and Marco fires a single shot, killing both the elder and the junior Shaw on stage. Marco then pulls a pistol to kill himself, but the FBI burst in and shoot Marco in the shoulder before he can commit suicide. The Manchurian global conspiracy is made public, and the company and its executives seemed doomed. Or as doomed as billionaires can ever be in our legal system. And Rosie, Marco, and the other agents revisit the location where Manchurian Global conducted their mind control experiments as credits roll. And as they start, you know, Jonathan Demme can always be counted on having cool rocker friends. He puts them in the movies. He gets songs no one's ever heard of, like Goodbye Horses and makes them classes. We get like 15 rock songs during these opening credits. Is there a soundtrack to this? Because it felt like they were changing the station just to fit 10 tracks in. (laughs) Well, I think they're also letting, you know, the passage of time and that Iraq war is considered a lot of sitting around and waiting. But there's a ton of music at the beginning of this, starting with a really cool cover of the old Credence Fortunate Son by Wycliffe of the Fugees. And yeah, it just really gets me in the mood. It feels a little hard hitting. I'm like, let's get some combat. And then you realize, oh, yeah, the Iraq war was a lot of sitting around and they make a joke here. What are they doing these soldiers in this tank they're playing cards the only reference we're going to have to a deck of cards is right here in the beginning i kept waiting for solitaire to come back it never does oh me too i thought for sure they'd at least keep the queen of diamonds involved somewhere this is it this is all that they're going to do for that and demi said it was really important for them to find their own way and not copy some of the big you know things that you instantly associate with the 1962 film and it's a little confusing that the titling says it's 1991 and they're about to start the Gulf War. It was already over by February 1991, so I don't know who got that part wrong. But the point is, I think we're to understand with the oil fields burning, this is more or less maybe kind of towards the tail end. That's the way that I take it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're going out to do a, some kind of mission. They're just talking about doing recon. And the fact that they have a civilian contractor, that feels very modern with all the contractors we brought over there to rebuild it and get taxpayer dollars. So that that made sense. But yeah, it didn't feel like it was in the middle of the war. Yeah, if you're having a Brit sit there thinking about what happens next... 
you've already got this more or less wrapped up. You're not really that worried about Sodom. You ought to be worried about the Brit, as it turns out, because he's conspiring against you. He is part of the brainwashing organization, kind of like the interpreter, that Henry Silva character that snuck the soldiers into that trap in the first movie. They're going down a road using their cool night vision goggles and boom, suddenly rockets and everything. And we do get a scene like before that when they're sitting around playing. Shaw does get introduced and he is just as unlikable as in the original one. Like he's not kicking people out of the whorehouse, but, you know, he tells those soldiers, hey, we're getting ready to move out. And they kind of just go quiet. And when he leaves, they all make fun of him. Yeah, he's socially awkward. And what's very clear here, if nothing else is he's no war hero. Everyone else is like grabbing their guns, getting some action, and he's hiding in the back of the vehicle. Yeah, Lee F. Schreiber, I think he's a really good actor, and I think he sells quite a bit in one scene here about the type of soldier he is, and he's going to act very differently across the board later on, not just brainwashing, but you don't get to be a politician without becoming somewhat likable. Well, usually. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, all the Liev Schreiber roles I've seen, and I I think he's cast well here because he always does come off as kind of cold. I I don't ever think of him... Again, I'm trying to think of all the movies I've seen him in. He never feels like a warm character. He he always feels distant, and that's right for Shaw. Aloof is definitely his bag. Intelligent, cold, aloof, assassins, academics... Yeah, people on the outside. That all makes sense. There were a lot of actors apparently up for this. Aliyev's screen test and, and working with Meryl was apparently what sold Demi that this was the guy. And I think he got lucky because honestly, this is the tricky role. This was one of my problems with the original one. I'm sure Lawrence Harvey is a good actor in other movies. He's got the Oscar nominations in other films. But I felt like in that role, sometimes he just played it so heavy-handed. He felt like Morrissey or something. He laid on all of that melodrama and woe is me so heavy that it really was impossible for me to have a lot of empathy for that character. And here, I think Liev always, even though I understand why people wouldn't like him, I feel like I can. I can be empathetic towards his circumstance and and recognize that he just has lived a life of privilege that means he just doesn't understand these other soldiers and doesn't really know uh, how to interact with everyday folk. And yet, as, as much as you claim this book, and, and I'm sure you're telling us the truth, but this book is all about Shaw, you know, that original, it felt like a split, you know, it was Frank Sinatra. Of course, he's got to get his time in front of the screen. But this film feels like Shaw is even more of a side character because when we jump forward after this ambush, I mean, it's almost all about Denzel Washington's character, Marco. I think that's wise too. Yeah, when you look at the video cover and the poster, in many times, all you see is Denzel. I, I thought Denzel was going to be the Shaw character because that's who I thought this story was about. I did too. I came in and I'm like, is it him? But then I they called him the captain and I remembered that somebody had to award the Medal of Honor and we see Marco back speaking to a Boy Scout troop, which seems, I don't know, that seems a little demeaning for a military commander, but he's talking about giving the Medal of Honor, I'm like, okay, then it's Liev. I couldn't remember from that airplane trip which one was going to be the sleeper agent. Yeah, I think it allows us to go with this character more than we ever were with Frank Sinatra. Like, this guy has to figure it all out, and we figure it out with him. And even if you've seen the original movie and you're like, oh, I already know what's happening, you do only to a point. I do feel like there's a lot of details about 
who's behind it all and, and how the control is happening, that is fun to go on a step-by-step basis with Denzel, who, of course, is a great actor and right from the get-go here is very compelling as a man that you can tell is BSing it. Like, he's convincing the little kids that, yes, it all went this way. But he himself, you can see that he's troubled. His life is obviously not one where he has gone on and flourished beyond whatever happened. Again, we cut away, and the last thing I saw was the military contractor knocking him out. It didn't look like Ray was going to be a hero. And all of a sudden, here comes Jeffrey Wright to be like, you know what? I remember the way you say it as something in a dream, but I feel like this is not what actually happened. And I like how, again, because I think what this really taps into, you talk about what happens to vets when they come home from war and, you know, a lot of them have mental illness issues, maybe end up on the the street homeless, like they have a hard time adapting because of what they went through. And like, I think this film really captures that really well. So, you know, it's in this thriller, science fiction-y type world, but I, I think they really bring that in, starting with Jeffrey Wright's Melvin, like he's got this notebook with crazy pictures in there and I love it. He's like, I've mapped out the whole ambush. Like, you were at this Hummer, and so you should have been the one firing that. It doesn't make any sense. Like, it, I, I thought this tapped into that kind of mentality, what vets go through when they come home really well. I wasn't sure because, again, like Stuart said, a lot of the first Iraq war was a lot of sitting around and just waiting for planes to drop missiles and various missile attacks. We didn't have drones yet back then. I don't think the stories coming out of the first Gulf War mirror those coming out of the second wars. Yeah, but there was, I remember stories about that Gulf War syndrome that soldiers were supposedly coming home with from that first one. I thought they were trying to tap into that. And, and, you know, was it just a physical thing? Was it mental? Like, they're always trying to get Marco back on his meds in this. Actually, I think they're ahead of this. Again, keep in mind, we haven't sent troops over there for Iraq, too. So... Again, they anticipated this problem happening before it did. It wasn't really relevant to the first movie, but they just imagined that it would be for soldiers that had been mentally screwed up the way that these ones have. It is a question in the beginning. We think Jeffrey Wright is the messed up one, and Denzel is like, do you need some money? Do you need some help? And then slowly but surely, as we watch Denzel's life, we realize that no, Everybody that is touched by that platoon is experiencing things the way that we think about people coming home now are feeling. See, and what I got thinking about is you start with Fortunate Son, and then you get somebody with PTSD. It felt to me like they were just drawing on Vietnam a little bit, you know, looking at how Vietnam vets did come home with a lot of PTSD. Fortunate Son, a big anti-Vietnam song. So I was just getting that kind of a vibe. I mean, what big anti-Gulf War song was there? I I feel like protest songs have gone out of vogue. But this film's going to modernize itself pretty fast. Jeffrey Wright would go on to be the new CIA agent lighter in the James Bond films. Here, this is going to be about the entirety of his role. He wasn't that big of an actor back then, so he gets this. And he does very well. I I like the hand tattoos and things really selling a little bit of crazy. Yeah, and... Later on, Marco's going to be, like, writing information on his hand. I'm like, it totally reminded him of Memento. I'm like, is he going to use this but not remember what it means and misunderstand it and go after the wrong people? Yeah, his life does feel like a puzzle. I mean, it's not as complicated as a Nolan movie. But, like, when we next see him, he's, like, buying groceries and and it's ramen, no-dose. 
That was such a weird insert shot. I'm, I'm like, it was so weird that they have, they have this short scene at that grocery store. I, I'm like, is that just here to justify why he walks in with groceries later? But no, that will come back. Ramen, no-dos, tomatoes, and romance novels. They cut the scene that explains he buys the romance novels for his elderly neighbor. They just felt like that didn't matter. But the tomatoes is a factor. We'll get into it when we find out that this international company can genetically modify fruit as well. And Denzel is having dreams about tomatoes as big as the size of pumpkins being carried around by these women with burkas and tattoo faces yeah and is this supposed to be taking place in 2004 because when we do the jump after the ambush it just says washington dc today and i guess this came out in 2004 and they say it's like 13 years later i freeze framed on some documents and it looks like it's happening summer 2003 he gets arrested in august 2003 yeah, there are some, as close as I think this, at least this first act is to the original, I do get lost with some of the details. I, I don't know if it's the editing or what it is, but like Marco's going to be watching TV and we're going to see debates over who the VP nominee is going to be and Senator Jordan played by John Voight as a Democrat, I believe. I know he's a Republican in real life, but I believe he's supposed to be a Democrat who's critical of the war on terror and, and, but the other Democrats like, Eleanor Shaw's mom, she's pro, even though she, I think she's Hillary Clinton, but she's a pro-war Democrat. Like, I, I get lost in some of those details trying to figure out all the debates going on. Well, the important thing just to point out is, again, Marco is watching this eating a cup of ramen noodles. And then we cut to Raymond Shaw, who he's been following obsessively his career and his rise up through Congress, now stands to potentially get the VP slot and win and become, you know, the next vice president, when we see him in the hotel room, he's also eating noodles and has the same expression. And it's really selling the idea that even though these men's financial circumstances are so different, psychologically speaking, they're both in the same place. Whatever happened to them in 1991 is still playing out. And we'll find out it was sort of like a passing statement, but most everyone else in that troop is dead. Yeah, that kind of washed over me the first time I watched it. I watched it twice for this review because at the beginning here, the first time I watched it, because we just watched the original, I'm expecting certain things to happen. I'm expecting Shaw's dad to be there. Yeah, there's no stepfather. Yeah, I was sort of expecting that plot to happen. I was expecting maybe something to happen with the senator's daughter. I'm trying to grasp the changes when I realize that they've consolidated and actually streamlined in the new century. Female senators are not uncommon, so they made his mother the senator, and he's a congressman. And I think Meryl Streep's best scene is early on, where she's establishing her dominance over her political party. Again, because she says they're not going to win in the South no matter what, I'm pretty sure this is the Democratic Party. Yeah, they're Democrats, for sure. And just the speech she gives, because they're like, we're not going to have this junior congressman as vice president and she convinces them all why they have to yeah what they're saying john voight doesn't appeal to blacks women or college kids and my handsome son will and yeah she just she rattles off all the reasons why it is the way it is and you're right it begs a question meryl streep probably no other actress would have 
what she brings to the role. She makes sense to play mother, but she doesn't feel like she's doing Angela Lansbury. No, this is not Angela Lansbury. Yeah, she's not behind the scenes. She doesn't have to be stage mom. She can have had her own career, and it sounds like, yeah, on some level, she's Hillary Clinton if Hillary Clinton had killed Bill Clinton after getting (laughs) impeached over Monica Lewinsky. I'm sure there's some conspiracy theory out there that she actually did. Have you seen Bill lately? Not looking good. But back in the 80s, something happened to her senator husband. She'll mention later that he should have been president, but didn't live up to those ideals. So I take it to mean that, you know, she's tough. And she took over his seat. She was able to win that seat because, I I guess, of the sympathy or whatever. That happens quite a bit that you find out the widow isn't the new senator, I've noticed. But just Meryl Streep's look here, I I saw her, I'm like, oh, is that that Hillary? Like, I guess when they come out with the Hillary biopic, it's going to be played by Meryl Streep because she's got that look down. When they come out with the Eminem biopic, it's going to be played by Meryl Streep. (laughs) Who are you kidding? (laughs) Now, I just also want to put it out there that I watched some behind-the-scenes stuff. I definitely felt the pantsuits were Hillary Clinton, but not everything (laughs) done here made me think of Hillary. And Meryl definitely cops to the fact that that wasn't the only thing in her mind. I think that she drew from that visually, because she kind of looks like her, but she said she also looked a lot at Donald Rumsfeld. And I kind of got that once I... I had that in my mind that some of her laughter and some of her mirth and all of that about things that aren't that funny kind of remind me of Rumsfeld as well. Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense, so it was really his responsibility to lead that invasion. He made some of the early misstatements of overconfidence and feeling like things were under control that were not. And by the way, who is Meryl Streep schooling? Who is she trying to convince from the president's party? That's Roger Corman. Jonathan Demme got his start with Roger Corman and always puts him in all his films. And there he is shaking hands with Meryl Streep. He said that was quite a treat for him. Yeah, especially since he didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> you know he didn't. In fact, he was probably grabbing props to go and make another <laughs> movie with. And so this is where they're nominating the vice president. So we're pretty close to election at this point. I mean, Kamala was announced, what, in August before the election? So it's usually pretty close to the election that the president makes his choice. Typically, you do it before the convention so that at the convention, they can have a big speech where we understand this is the VP. I think this they hedged a little by saying it's not, you know, historically speaking, it's not uncommon for a president not to know who he's going to have as a running mate. But here, for dramatic purposes, yeah, it's either John Voigt or it's Liev Schreiber. And it is because of Meryl Streep's string pulling that uh, everyone ends up going along with the quote-unquote surprise candidate that the press knows nothing about because, well, he's been insulated and media shy. And all we know is he has a Medal of Honor and he's young. And so that makes him have youthful appeal. And I thought this movie was going in a totally different direction, though, because when Streep is making that speech, she says the NSA reports were on the brink of another cataclysm, possibly nuclear, on our own soil. And I'm like, damn, that Manchurian candidate's going up a step. He's not going <laughs> to snipe somebody. He's going to nuke. <laughs> he's going to get the codes and launch the nukes. No, I thought maybe he'd be a suicide nuclear bomber or something, you know? So it'd be like some of all fears. Yeah. He'd help get that dirty bomb in. Yeah, that's where I thought this movie would go when they mentioned that. But no, nothing nuclear ever happens again. They also don't do garden clubs in New Jersey hotels. And that was probably wise. When we have these dream sequences, uh, they're just more of the kinds of 
MTV style editing, jittery, a sense that Marco knows that he and his fellow soldiers at certain points were in chairs having their brains operated on. And we see Ray take a plastic bag and kill Anthony Mackie. That's our clue into what Frank Sinatra learned in his dream. I guess Demi wanted, what, us to feel as confused as the soldiers are feeling trying to remember these dreams? Because, yeah, with the original Manchurian Candidate, you get that masterful scene where they're seeing old women talking about plants, and then you you gradually figure out what's going on. Here, it is just a lot of, like, flashbacks and weird images of tattooed women, and, like, none of that's ever going to get explained. You'll see some shots, but... No, no, it's explained. though. I mean, the way I take it is, we think, oh, there's the women, and they must be actual when we go back there we'll find out that the women are actually somebody else but in fact when you when you look at the later reveal about what really happened there after he has the electric shock therapy uh, we see on the poster that they're being conditioned to hate those women that's being imprinted well that's what i figured it was like we'll make them look vaguely you know middle eastern with you know burkas or whatnot and and yeah it'll create some kind of conditioning i i got that i i just felt like again maybe they want to play it a little different where you're just your mind's more muddled and confused than where you get clarity with the original that's not a complaint i think this film does get you into a mindset of someone that's really paranoid better than the original i like what demi does here with these images I like the lady in the burka with the face tattoos holding a brain after she's holding a tomato and all of that. But if you're going to give me as striking a visual as a woman in an all-black burka with black tattoos perfectly horizontal on her face, like a Middle Eastern type of pinhead with the grid on her face holding a brain... I want that to be more of a part of it. I know that you don't want to do the racist, the Arabs did the brainwashing, but if you're going to give me that striking a visual, I wish that it had paid off more later instead of being a, oh, and also, and it's this Eastern European guy who's really the bad guy. Yeah, you could call it political correctness, but I actually just think it's a good fake out. We think, of course, the enemy has to be someone over there because they were taken, right? Like, that's what the original one did. And so, yeah, our enemy has, whether it was Saddam or, I don't know, would Osama bin Laden have been active at that time? I mean, maybe. But somebody over there did this to us. Just to clarify, I'm not saying the bad guy should be Arab. I'm saying that that visual was too striking. You should remove the women in the burgers with the face tattoos because it just draws too much attention to itself in, in a meaningless way. This visual cements that idea for much of the movie so that is, I think, a surprise, maybe a little. I mean, once they announce that the conglomerate that's the biggest donor to Meryl Streep is Manchurian Global, I think we've got to be thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, you connect that with the title. Even if you haven't seen the original, like, you're like, oh, Manchurian Candidate, Manchurian Global. I get it. So is Manchuria a land in China? Did this company name itself after a Chinese area? Or did they make that up for the first movie and Manchurian Global just is 
a company name. I mean, Manchuria is a real place. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real place in China. But I think that the way to think about maybe is that in this day and age, nothing is regional, right? Like, okay, maybe a company started as somebody in a garage in Manchuria, but like, you know, it gets sold and bought and consolidated with a hundred different companies and all of a sudden they're everywhere. And that is the threat. Like the idea that an international company can have its fingers in so many pots it could be yeah, working on a better tomato and it be, could be working on brain control. I mean, all of that is uh, what we fear about with corporate America. Wasn't all of this in Van Halen's Right Now video? Uh, there was a tomato in there. Or, well, <laughs> well, to be fair, it was a breast implant, but they called it a tomato. But yes, I mean, I definitely feel like that's a very exploitable fear that, again, removes Islamophobia that can be discussed by another. This will not be about the particulars of a war that hadn't yet even happened when they were making it. And I think that there was a wise decision for them to do that. Of course, while the Iraq war, they had made this post 9-11. So, I mean, there was definitely wars going on in the Middle East. There was a year before we invaded Iraq, which again, was not the country that attacked us. No, but we had invaded Afghanistan by this point. Invaded? Uh, we had done military strikes. So it's probably good to steer away from a Middle Eastern villain, given that in real life we were hunting a Middle Eastern villain. But the other thing is, the, what was scary about, take a drink everyone, 9-11, was that it wasn't a state actor. It, it, it was a stateless actor that was striking us. And so to say that, yeah, it, it's Afghanistan that brainwashed shot or Saddam Hussein, it just, we're in a different era of warfare now where we're fighting stateless enemies. So yeah, to have this conglomerate be the bad guy here, it just makes more sense. Right, yeah. Things are not territorial, regional country specific anymore like it's just everything has gotten a lot more amorphous and that can be hard to dramatize then well how do we know who the bad guy is i think it's helpful to have dean stockwell being one of the suits that is meeting raymond shaw at this fundraiser in a greenhouse supposedly this is promoting the idea that they're all ecologically friendly right we're making a new tomato and everything everything we're doing is helping the planet and maybe in some areas, Manchuria and Global is doing that. Jonathan Demme said the brain control technology he researched for this film put in here is being implemented to help people with Parkinson's. It helps control their tremors. So all of these things, they can be seen as either positives or negatives. But he liked the idea of playing with a company that could be doing good work with one hand and stealing from the till the other. That's even in this movie. They'll talk about these implants being used, to, like RFD tags to carry medical information on soldiers where you just scan it. Like there's the good side and then there's the dark side. Right. It's all about who's controlling it. And the, and the point is this company wants no oversight. They're trying to get their fingers into politics as well. They need a political candidate because once you have someone in the White House that gives them a rubber stamp, well, then corporate America can do anything. Right? Right? And they're the biggest political backers <laughs> of Senator Shaw, the mother. Right, exactly. This is also where we introduce the idea that Raymond has a long-lost love, that his mother has sheltered him for much of his life. He didn't have a girlfriend until after he was 20. Well, I'm sure he's marriage material now. When you're the VP, that gets you something, I suppose. Yeah, but he says he hasn't had, when he meets Jocelyn at this party, she's married now. So I'm like, oh, okay, so they're going a different direction. But he says he hasn't had a serious relationship since they broke up. And I I got, I just got to say, especially back in 2004, you're a VP that, you know, 
this old doesn't have a wife like people are going to question that they're they're going to try to read into that we talked about the subtext in the film last time with is Shaw a homosexual but I like I do see that as not a benefit for a VP nominee I think our current VP gets knocked for calling his wife mother Oof. your private life is very public when you run for office these days 2004 for certain gay rumors or just what's going on with this guy a medal of honor wouldn't be enough to keep these people away and scenes were deleted that showed shaw more on the campaign trail and people knocking him more and more for being kind of under the thumb of his mom there was some political dissent i think here all you see is al franken at one point pop up and pose <laughs> the question but for the most part they had to minimize Shaw because this movie runs a little long and it's a Denzel movie. So yeah, Denzel shows up. Marco shows up at this garden meeting. And this is where I thought I'm like, okay, they're, they're taking a different turn here. Cause with Sinatra, you just expect him to stroll in, get his way. And I kind of think the same way as Denzel, good looking man, like well-respected actor. But in this film, like he's not treated with the respect, like a, a commanding officer, I would think would be treated with. He's, you know, turned away and Shaw doesn't really want anything to do with them and like people aren't greeting him he starts to come off again a little stalkerish well Shaw does say to him as soon as he sees him he smiles warmly and says I want to talk to you it's came off sincere now maybe he's just a good smooth talking politician but then Denzel goes to talk to him and it's the exact opposite and Shaw's like don't touch me yeah well, he had just been rebuffed. It should be said in between there. The reason why I can't talk to you right now is I just saw my girlfriend from 15 years ago and I really want to start that going. And she's like, yeah, no, people can't rewrite their lives. Sorry. And by the way, I'm also the daughter of the guy that didn't get the VP slot. So there would be that to deal with as well. Her father is John Voight. So for lots of reasons. Is she remarried? I, I think what God said was that she had been married and now was not. So I think she was maybe eligible. She's living with her dad, we'll find out, but underdeveloped. I take it to mean I'm not interested in you because of you and not because I am tied to somebody else. I have to just say the most unbelievable part of this movie, though, is that Eleanor Shaw would arrange for her son to be vice president and not arrange for him to have a trophy wife to look good for the vice presidency. If she can help with mind control and Manchuria, yeah, he shouldn't still be pining for this other girl. At least he should have a fake wife for the reasons you guys mentioned. But I think that goes back to the original movie's idea of sex controls. That's how kind of some of this works. And I think that Meryl Streep, in, in this case, we're going to find out she's always known her son was going to be the Manchurian candidate. It's not a surprise to her that it got sprung after the Iraq war. She knew from the start and maybe has coddled him and protected him from women. Maybe this was the one act of rebellion where he went outside of her control. I think she's afraid to let, again, she's so power hungry. She's defined that way. So to share him with any woman, even a trophy wife, is probably beyond the ego of Ali. Yeah, he says his one act of rebellion in his life was after his mother broke him up with Jocelyn is when he ran off and enlisted in the army. He came from the best prep schools. He joined the army just to spite his mother. But she made that work to her advantage. I have to think he'd be some kind of Manchurian candidate even if he didn't go. 
Or maybe that's why she did it, because he finally did something, and so she needed tighter control. I like that thinking. I like that as a, as a theory, that maybe she could have just controlled him because of her will. So many people are controlled by her, and they don't have implants. But I think she might have said, he needs an implant when he dated a girl she didn't like. This is also the one scene where Denzel shares with Meryl. You know, the two stars we might have wanted to see play off of each other. They're both known for being great thespians. But uh, we just see her kind of blowing past him, treating him with disrespect, as you say, Jacob, because she's got the paparazzi chasing her around. And he's wondering, yeah, what's going on? He ends up reporting back to Ted Levine and Miguel Ferrer saying, I know you think I have PTSD, but I think this Raymond Shaw story is BS, and I think he should be investigated. Yeah, he gives them a whole story about hypnotism, which, again, you want to ease people into that, because it does sound crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, we believe Denzel because, well, we know what movie we're in, and he's just, he's our identifiable character. So, yes, listen to him. But you're right. If we were on the opposite side of that table, oh, yeah, okay, well, you've been shell-shocked, and we're just going to give you some more pills. And to this movie's credit, I think that may be the case at some point. Now, that theory's going to go away, but I do start believing Marco really is the crazy one at one point. Yeah, he's battling it. And he's off his meds. He has been given psychological medication, and... And he did stop taking them. Ted Levine calls that out. Right. Which will, I think, help him remember the past and make him unhinged and start having delusions about this doctor, like popping in when he's in the bathroom of the train or whatever. And Shaw is having those delusions as well, except those are real. <laughs> That's really happening. We finally get the method on how he's being controlled when Shaw returns from giving a speech and relaxing in his hotel room. His mother calls. We think, oh, well, here it comes. And then another line rings and we hear a British voice. I think it's that contractor from the original movie played by Robin Hitchcock, the British musician. I think he's the one that's kind of telling him, go to the closet. <laughs> oh, I, I love the visuals here. Like the room like lights up around him. You see this bright light shine upon Shaw's face. And then he starts walking to that bedroom. And there's a painting of the bedroom that looks just like, you know, the wall he's walking towards, mm -hmm. which I thought was great. And then he like turns and goes into the closet. And there's a whole secret door to a lab in there. Like this, you know, I, I got to ask, this one does seem more like a, a tight, uh, more grounded thriller. We're not going to get solitaire and queen of diamonds like is, is that working for you because at this moment i'm like oh yeah i remember I, i'm getting a point of fun in this film that i felt a lot in the last one you talked about it Stuart, being a dark comedy and i think it definitely had those tendencies and i enjoyed that about that last film this one has seemed so stiff up until this point this cool little sequence where we see how he's controlled with this brainwashing i thought was fun and i'm like oh i wish there was a little bit more of this kind of stuff in here i loved it but the first time i watched this i'm like oh that's so impractical when would this ever be used to in another scenario but the second time i watched it i caught that they actually cut a hole in drywall and i could understand why they would perhaps have secret rooms for rich people in hotels so i went with it but i did think the scene was fun and yeah i kind of wanted a bit more with that doctor like we got last time with low yeah you're not going to have the comedy of this one i think there's a dark sensibility it, it retains the cynicism which translates if you have the sensibility that terrible things can be hilarious then yes there there is still some bemused cynical ironic conclusions but yeah it's not the laugh fest that i would have characterized the last one during this 
this scene where we get this revelation with Shaw, we're seeing Marco breaking into Melvin's place and, you know, the walls are just covered in articles and drawings and writing. Yes, it's dark and cynical. I'm not having fun with that kind of, like, it feels very gloomy. And that that's not a slam against the one, one. I'm just calling out one of the major differences between the two versions of the story. Yeah, I definitely think so. Demi, you know, I look at the films we've mentioned of his Philadelphia, Silence of the Lambs. I expect him to take this a bit more seriously. And I like that this does feel sadly realistic, you know, to a degree, the science fiction element being the mind control, but that the rest of this feels like it could just be a conspiracy theory. You could end this movie just as easily by saying Marco is insane and then jumping out of his person POV and realize there were no implants. He was holding thumbtacks or something. Yeah, you're saying we could make it a Philip K. Dick movie. And I definitely think that was, like, that was the 90s, right? That was all of that about reality is not what you see and, and look like. And if you can punch a hole through it, you'll find out that we're controlled by machines that treat us like batteries or whatever. There were just so many ideas about the idea that beware of what you call reality. And this movie's kind of coming at the tail end of that trend and treating it maybe with a little less, I don't know, it's too tapped into the politics to truly enjoy some of the Philip K. Dick mind flip stuff that maybe another director would have really drilled into here. I think that Demi is most concerned about the political messages of the movie. And so the sci-fi goes largely unexplained. And where the mind flip really happens for me is when we get Marco, he's taking a train to New York City. And look, when I put this movie on, I'm watching the opening credits, we get three names, Denzel Washington, Leah Schreiber, and Meryl Streep. I'm like, okay, I, I know Meryl Streep's going to be the mom. Leah Schreiber and Denzel Washington, one's Marco, one's Shaw. Good. They got rid of Rosie because they don't need Rosie in this film. But then Rosie shows up on this train. I couldn't believe it using almost the same dialogue. And I'm like, okay, for sure they fixed this. She has to be <laughs> either on, on the bad side, keeping tabs on Marco or on the, on the U.S. government side, keeping tabs on Marco. Like she cannot be the same character we saw in that Sinatra film. They fixed this so much. I really do like what they did with this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, we, we've known even in the previous scene when he went into that hotel where Melvin was living in that somebody was watching him. So he's been under surveillance because he went outside for a period and was on the phone and we heard clicks and, and cameras were going off and someone seemed to be walking behind him. Though I will say, Stuart, I did wonder, is that in his head? Is he just going to be this paranoid, mentally broken down soldier that's imagining this? I, I had that theory for a while throughout the film. Yeah. I mean, it makes everyone a little bit more on edge and paranoid about who do you trust? I think it's really important that we don't fully trust Denzel. We trust him because he's Denzel, but there's still that 10% of like, but you're acting a little bit too much. <laughs> Never forget training day. He can be the bad guy. But he's seeing people on this train that aren't there, right? Yes, exactly. We definitely have a hallucination where his implant in his head kicks in and he sees that doctor pop into the bathroom once like it's a really creepy scene because he's i wouldn't call it flirting but he's talking to this woman rosie or eugene and she's like oh you know i'm your grocery clerk and i re I remember everything you check out and blah 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 and he's just looking at her imagining like a hole in her head opening up from where he's he shot her and like finally he just becomes overcome because he's thinking about the soldier that actually got killed. Yeah, the fact that she goes and finds him in the bathroom and like gives her her Eldorado phone number. I'm like, okay, she's a government agent or, or some kind of agent at least. <laughs> she likes to give phone numbers.
numbers the old-fashioned way. That was funny. Yeah, but she just got totally shot down. Like, I, I, I don't know. We don't know a lot about the Rosie character when she walks in, but I'm like, that's some confidence if she's just going to have a fling and, like, goes and after him after that kind of rejection. Yeah, she had some kind of agenda. Who she's working for or what she hopes to get out of Marco, we can't say for sure, but she's not just attracted to crazy the way Janet Leigh was like, ooh, I like him sweaty and psychotic. Like, no, that's, <laughs> I don't, I'm not buying that. She brings him back to what she calls her cousin's apartment. And it, we'll find out later it's stacked with cameras and she can see him in the bathroom when he doesn't think anyone's there. And which again, I was wondering if it was, that was just coming from his head. Mm-hmm. And it should be noted when they're going to her cousin's apartment is that you start hearing these things on the radio throughout the film or from TV. And we hear about Manchurian Global. They've been accused by the Pentagon for overcharging the government. You know, you always hear about those $3,000 toilet seats. And I guess that's what Manchurian Global got busted doing. Yeah, I did enjoy that even more the second time. This film has layers in the background that I think the more times you watch it, you'll be rewarded with some new Easter egg type things. Yeah, it's like 12 Monkeys in that way of just like, you're right. At the first watching, you would... I did not. I don't know what you would do, but I would not doubt the fact that there's a conspiracy going on. But in fact, when you really look at it, this guy could be nuts. In fact, it's even suggested to him when he finally pulls this implant out of his back. And keep in mind, they've been putting the implants in the head. So why is there one in his back? But he drops it down the sink and goes to visit his German friend. The German friend is like, well, what if you're still in Kuwait? What if like you never left? But like, let's let's really play into this paranoia. And I'm like, wow, is this Jacob's ladder? <laughs> I thought that was another clue that he was actually crazy. The fact that he drops down the sink as Rosie walks in. So she all she sees is Marco with his shoulder cut open. She doesn't know what's going on and there's no proof. Can't you just take the trap out? Isn't that why you have like the pipe that goes down and then back up as long as water isn't running you should be able to get that out of the trap i don't know if rosie's cousins want some stranger though taking her piping apart (laughs) yeah maybe denzel can't do that without equipment but i bet you the fbi surely did that (laughs) as soon as he left and they have they're building a dossier but again we don't know all of this until much later in the film they're monitoring him Marco is their entry into whatever is going on. Well, I guess they must know about Shaw at some point because she will become his security detail. And you say he goes to see this German friend of his, Delp. Again, this is maybe it's the editing. It's just we never saw this character before, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Marco is just talking to him and Delp's got all this equipment that could, you know, look into these implants later on. Like, I don't know who this character is. Tell me there was a deleted scene that sets up Delp because I wondered if Delp was a product of his imagination, too, for a while. Yes. No, and I, I think that's exactly what Demi is hoping that you start thinking about imaginary people. And he's already seeing people come into his bathroom that aren't there. I don't mean Eugene in her bathroom. I mean in the train car. Like, again, he it's confirmed. Like, the door opens behind him. He looks. It is not open. But when he looks in the reflection, it's open. So we know he's having visual hallucinations. We know that that is happening. Is Delp one of those? There's no understanding about how he would know this guy or or get there. So yeah, who knows? Maybe he is. Maybe we could even see this movie as he is just Marco's inner inner voice trying to help him deprogram. But first, he's got to go see Shaw. He's going to give Shaw another chance at his Times Square campaign headquarters. And I wondered if they'd strike up a friendship like they did last time. Because this time, Shaw is really 
seems happy to see him, or at least interested in the conversation. In this one, Shaw doesn't remember the events either. He's like, I can say what happened, but I don't remember them happening. So this could be like a good paired thing as they together explore what happened to them. And this is where Shaw starts talking about Jocelyn as well. I'm like, okay, are we just going to follow the last one? No, not at all. Yeah, and Shaw talks about, you know, he's being controlled by his mom or feels like that. She's trying to make him someone, like, from her side of the family. And we got a little blurb, like, he's the grandson of this industrialist. And, you know, then about his mom. Like, they do try to pin it, like, it's not his father's DNA. It's that mom's DNA that's evil. Right, and tracing it all the way back to an industrialist. You know, you think about all of the, the big family names, the Vanderbilt and what have you that built this country i take that the prentices are supposed to be that kind of dynasty you know she comes from unlimited money from someone who has a toehold in industry and could have built things like the manchurian global Uh, i believe not only is she a business party to them she may consider them employees she certainly will uh, do reckless behavior later in the film that's going to piss them off but here, Ray, yes, he has a moment of, of, I really like, again, the way Leah Schreiber plays this, because it's a difficult line. He knows that Marco is unwell, and he can see that, and it would be very easy to blow him off and say, I got a busy schedule. But there's something about the guy that he identifies with, and I think that there's something he feels internally that he wants to confess. And Marco is the person that could maybe best understand that. And this shows a very different Shaw than we saw at the beginning. Jacob, you called out at the beginning, Shaw was an unlikable guy, standoffish. Here, though, yeah, he's showing compassion, he's showing some warmth, and yet he's surrounded by his people all the time. He says, this is as private as it gets, I'm running for vice president until... Marco starts talking about some sensitive things. He's like, oh, well, maybe I actually can get a conference room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I take that to mean that, like, there's a part, again, there's a part of him that truly does feel connected, that would like to run off and get some testing. And, you know, he he doesn't want to totally buy into the conspiracy that Marco is spinning. But there's something about him that he still trusts. And I think that that's a balance that's hard to dramatize that Liev and the screenwriters have done well. But I think all that trust goes out the window and Marco goes full Mike Tyson and starts biting Shaw. Like <laughs> Mike Tyson? No, this was a Marv Albert move, right? The biting of the back? Oh, that's right. He did go for the back of that hooker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. There's a name I hadn't thought about in a while. Yeah. But uh, thank you, Arnie, for clarifying something. I didn't realize, you know, Marco's going to have another implant. I thought he just like pulled it out of his teeth. I thought he had multiple implants in them. And you always hear, you know, crazy people thinking the government's put transmitters in their fillings. But no, this is how he got that other implant by biting it out. I didn't realize he got it out of Marco's back. Yeah, that was a Hannibal Lecter move. I, he, yeah. I was like, <laughs> you have to take out a chunk of flesh to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ray is not holding ill will. Like he feels like he has dinner with his mother and he's like, I'm not going to press charges. And you can tell that like, I actually, one of the scenes I remember from this movie was like, I remember Meryl Streep chewing ice. And it's in this moment where she realizes, wait, you're not going to turn this into like a stalker thing we can run in the press and set up Marco. I'm so mad at you that you're not going to press charges because I've worked so hard to make your old troop commander be the psycho sniper at the end of this storyline. Yeah, but if he did go to jail, and I guess he could have posted bail and gotten out, but like if he's in prison, 
prison, wouldn't that mess up her plan as well? No, no. It makes it public. It creates records and it, it helps her case. No one will question that this guy was, you know, unlike JFK, like this is the total nut. You know, he's, the, he's not Oswald. He's not connected in CIA dealings. He's someone that has been out there being crazy, obsessing about my son for years. Go look at his apartment. Go look at this. He's really being set up. But what Jacob says makes sense. I mean, if the younger Shaw had pressed charges, he could have gone to jail. By not pressing charges, but having him arrested, then that's creating the paper trail, but keeping him out on the streets. Yeah, uh, okay. But I mean, like, he wouldn't have gone to jail for that. I mean, people like this don't... Jails are overrun. I feel like he would have gone to jail, and maybe regardless, even how this plays out in the film. Like, Secret Service not doing a great job by letting Marco get so close to him again at the end. Yeah, and she's got the file. This is where we actually, you know, see, uh, you know, that she's like, all right, so here's what he's been going through, and we we actually see that he has been institutionalized somewhere between 1991 and 2003. Marco was maybe homeless or just had lost it and was put in a padded room, white walled straitjacket. I mean, like this really makes us look at Denzel. This was the moment for me where I was like, wow, maybe they're not doing the original and I should not trust Marco the way that I trusted Sinatra. Oh yeah. I, I've stopped trusting Marco at this point. I do wonder if he's just crazy, at one point, you, uh, I'm going to come to the conclusion that he's a Manchurian candidate as well. That will play out. But yeah, I, I, you definitely get a different feel for this character. This is not Sinatra's Marco. See, and I just thought he was going a little bit insane because of what had happened to him. But, you know, like Minority Report, I took this as a thriller. You mentioned Philip K. Dick. I took this as a thriller where the paranoia is closing in on him. I started to question if there would be two Manchurian candidates, but I was never certain of it until the final thing is revealed. And I went, okay, they did go that way. I, I was, again, I think I was harmed by having that previous movie so fresh in my mind that I was just applying rules to this movie that aren't there. If I'd seen this movie first, I probably would have guessed it earlier. I, I thought this movie set off, a, and it's a compliment, like it sets itself up as something different pretty early on, which I appreciate. If you're going to remake something, update it, make make it relevant, you know, for what's going on at that moment. I wouldn't want to see another Cold War Manchurian candidate with the Soviet Union. That just wouldn't make sense. So I like that they've changed it, that they're playing with your expectations. If you are familiar with the old one, like I could appreciate what they're doing here. Technically, and, and the way it's written, like I'm not having the fun that I had with the last one. And again, I think there's some weird edits and characters just introduced but maybe you're supposed to feel disoriented so i'm going along with it yeah you have to accept the fact that this is a grungier less fun and where our main character is not an obvious hero and you're right arnie i think it could be even more challenging for people that know the original movie really well than people that just you know were like okay it's a thriller they might be able to guess some of these plot twists that we wouldn't guess because we would think they're going to hew to the past what ends up unlocking all of the memories and i think we can trust these is that denzel just decides fry me okay delp strap me in like your monkeys 
and we'll just turn on the juice and see what we unlock. Do either of you know, are you familiar with the history of shock therapy? Like, I never, you see it in movies, it's done to crazy people. I never understood it. I don't know why you do that in real life. I've I've heard people on podcasts talk about it, like they have got it done, like to try to break addiction from like hardcore drug use and stuff, but... My father had it done, repeatedly. Was he a heroin addict or something, or...? No, he was uh, depressive. Didn't Carrie Fisher do that for the same reason? Yes, but she was an addict too. But my yeah. father, I mean, he wasn't really an addict. <laughs> you know, when, once I say that, it sounds like he was. But uh, <laughs> he, he primarily had the shock therapy because it repaths some things in your brain and they think that it can be a cure. It's a severe cure, but they think it can be a cure for depression as well as bipolar. And so he had that done many times in his life, including in his 80s. Could you imagine doing that to an 80-year-old man? And you lose memory when that happens. It's usually short-term stuff that you've lost, but a day, a week, you don't quite remember what's happened. And it's still so barbaric. I know the popular thing now is to microdose like LSD or magic mushrooms, and they've found some great strides in dealing with PTSD. Much better than shock therapy to me, I think. Give me that acid. Well, yeah, maybe if this movie were made now or when they remake it, they'll they'll go that way with it. But yeah, they needed something. And again, we could accept that this Delp doesn't even exist. And this guy is just breaking. The more that he's seeing, the more he's exposing a conspiracy. Maybe maybe it's nothing more than his mind rejecting the official version of things. Yeah, and we, we see that. Like now we see that Marco killed Ingram and then Shaw choked out Baker. And so th- once you get this new revelation of these memories he has i'm like oh marco for sure is another manchurian candidate like why would they have each of them kill someone yeah you wonder if they would have done that with frank sinatra i i don't audiences really liked him at that time i don't think that they would accept that he even under mental conditioning i don't think they they could accept that kind of moral blight on his character ironically even though sinatra is no saint but uh, to the public he was but here we live at a time where i think i don't know we accept more moral grayness out of certain actors. And I think Denzel's so good in this. It's it's such an internal part. And he doesn't get to do what a lot of thrillers do with the action of, of distracting you. This movie is pretty slow moving. And so he's got to carry it with the weight of a drama. I mean, like a lot of this just feels heavy. And it doesn't have lightness of comedy or like the adrenaline of, a, of like a chase scene. So it really does... Yeah, it requires the kind of star power that makes you hold on to a character for lots of reasons that audiences might otherwise lose interest in. And the movie is over two hours long. And as you say, without that kind of action scenes that maybe even a Jack Ryan movie would have, it is Denzel and Liev that are carrying me through this. Meryl Streep could almost be like the and Meryl Streep with Meryl Streep. She doesn't have that many scenes, but the other two... Do keep me engaged. Yeah, I really wanted her to Lansbury it up, but she doesn't get much. <laughs> yeah, it, it's lesser for her. And, and I did see a really great deleted scene. It was when she was having dinner with her son and she's eating what, what you don't realize until you see this part of the scene, but she was eating a steak filled with oysters. I didn't know they did that. It's kind of like an aphrodisiac thing, and the conversation gets a little flirty. They wanted to hold back on some of that. They didn't want the incest thing to become so clear. I don't know that you would have picked up on that if you hadn't seen the original movie until the end. Yeah, at the end, yeah. 
But only at the end. No, no, yeah. But I'm saying it, it's a surprise for you at the climax, and you don't want to have a scene in the middle of the movie where a mother is like, eat more oysters, Sonny, and we can go back to my room. But it's a great scene. But here we see Rosie's taking care of Marco as he's trying to get his memory back. He's still foggy. And you get that's where you get the scene where, again, Marco thinks there's cameras like in the vents of Rosie's bathroom. But my theory that he's totally crazy, that he's imagining all this is thrown out pretty quickly when he goes through Rosie's stuff and finds a dossier on himself and a bag of micro cassettes. The micro cassettes really took me back, too. Those were fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it explains Rosie because, again, it's crazy to think that anyone would be so into him that she's taken him in i mean what would he have done if he hadn't met her on the train like where would he would be sleeping on the street or maybe in jail i mean so it really wasn't a well thought out plan to get on that amtrak and so rosie yes if she is janet lee we got to look at her askance now she makes sense it has to be true because only someone that was trying to investigate marco would be allowing for all of this crazy behavior. Well, I didn't know she was investigating him yet. Or again, is she with Manchurian and she's just keeping tabs on him? I didn't know yet. I actually thought that with with all the cameras and the micro cassettes, I thought she was Manchurian. Right. You're right. I'm forgetting. But you're right. That could be an obvious conclusion one would make. And kind of one that he makes because he slips out while she's sleeping. And it's a really clever way of doing a data dump. Like if you got to do it, run some audio of the micro cassettes while he's doing an internet search and... Not even internet. I think he's like doing microfiche. Microfiche. Well, at one point he's in like the computer lab sitting next to Elvis. I thought that was like a funny <laughs> little, you know, conspiracy idea that he's still alive. I saw the sideburns. I thought that was just an extra who took it upon himself to stand out a little too much. But there is microfiche, but there is Google. But it was how Google looked and worked in 2004 where all your results were blue and underlined. <laughs> Anyway, what he's really gathering here is this company's up to its neck in a lot of government contracts that have them developing missile shields for all kinds of countries, including enemies of our state. And so Belarus, Saudi Arabia, they're in Guantanamo. They're doing these health initiatives with growing our food. And and at the center of all of it is the South African scientist, the one from his visions, Atticus Noyles, who is one of FBI's 25 most wanted people. He has conducted unethical research on political prisoners. And so we have a good reason to believe that these dreams are in fact true, that Denzel is finally getting to the truth. As crazy as it sounds, his dreams make more sense than the official line of things. I do like that they give a rational good reason that you would want these implants. They're like, oh, we're going to give them to dementia patients or we could implant their memories and and they can remember things again. Like, okay, there again, there's that bright side of the evil corporate global corporation and they're, what they're doing. But maybe that's just a cover for controlling Manchurian candidates. Right. And it's a slippery slope. How anything that seems good could be used for nefarious purposes if it goes that way. And and if a company wants to make money, they're not making those choices based on the ethics. These are people that are like, oh, let's test it out on political prisoners. We don't care what wrong has happened to them. Let's, they're guinea pigs. And so that is the scary part. You realize that anyone can be considered a fair game for testing out their latest, whatever, war machine or yeah, amazing fruit additive. But Margo doesn't know that Rosie's a... FBI agent, he also would think Manchurian, so he goes to the only person he can trust, 
John Voight. Which makes sense if you remember John Voight as the Vietnam vet from Coming Home, a movie that I mentioned during Born on the Fourth of July. One of his absolute greatest performances. He is a hippie in that movie. He is considered a liberal at that time. I think his politics have changed and his relationship with his daughter makes us perceive John Voight in a very different way than we would have back when he was in the Vietnam era. I mean, he he is a Trump supporter. Like, he is a different person. Right. I see the logic of Demi saying, you represent Vietnam era soldiers and that you're in politics means that you are more inclined to believe this Gulf vet who is coming to you with some crazy stuff that half of which you probably don't believe. But hey, if this can destroy the career of Raymond Shaw and I can get that VP slot, then hey, let's do it. I also thought it was funny around this time, one of those news broadcasts that you hear going on, there's some kind of like protest going on over voting machines. I don't know. I remember like there's always scandals over these electronic voting machines. I don't know if this was forward thinking or if those had come into vogue by this point, but I love that like these protesters dump out chads. Yeah, yeah. I think that they were thinking about the election of 2001 and and thinking about what 2004 scandal would be. It would be the touchscreens fail. And and again, we're always worried about the efficacy of uh, rigged elections. And, and so, again, that's another way that this movie just feels so current. You know, in 2004, we thought, oh, the next scandal is going to be touchscreens. 16 years later, we're still dealing with the U.S. mail. The biggest conspiracy <laughs> is snail mail. The post office, yes, <laughs> is playing a role in all of this. Nothing cyber about it at all. And so, yeah, Jordan heads over there, confronts Ray, who, again, has doubt, who is like, God, maybe I am the first privately owned vice president. Maybe I should go get a test, Mom. What do you think? No, no, no. You should do what I say and go kill Tom. Yeah, this is revealed the first time that she's using those code words to give him order. Again, there's no playing cards here. It's just, you say his name like three times, like Beetlejuice. Mm -hmm. In three specific ways. And you have to know their middle names. So really only mothers could do this. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know you're in trouble when the mother breaks out that middle name. Well, yeah, when, when they use your full name <laughs> on you, you're busted. But that she does this here, I mean, again, because I saw the last one, not a great shock. That she does it to go kill the other senator, not a great shock. That she's going to get chewed out for doing it, though. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, when you think about it, like, this is highly risky. If you're the vice president, you don't want to be murdering right now. Maybe ever, but definitely <laughs> not right now when you're on the campaign trail, because there's a lot of eyes on you. You have people for that. Yeah, exactly. But it's a give me of this movie that they're asking us to believe that... uh Someone is not always following Raymond Shaw around. Obviously, he would have not one moment of privacy if this were a real political campaign. Well, there's always this like Secret Service guy that he's saying, oh, you, you could wait outside. I'm like, oh, that guy's got to be in on the conspiracy, too. But no, I don't think he is. Oh, no, he is. He plants the rifle. Okay. I was talking more about like a bus full of journalists are going to be following you wherever you go. And you want that. You You want that kind of press because sometimes you can use that to your advantage. But we have to believe that he has a morning off and he can go out <laughs> to this lake house and take out paddle boaters. Kayaking in the New York River. Oof, I don't know that I would want to do that. That's some nasty water. I mean, I know people do boat and things, but man, that's that's some cold ass water, too. Yeah, and we see Shaw, like, wade out into the water, fully dressed. I'm like, this guy be an homage to that kind of silly scene where he's told to go jump in a lake <laughs> in the original. Like, it has to be. I'm glad he didn't jump in a lake. 
I didn't even think about it, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, that jump in the lake scene, again, my least favorite from last time. Glad they didn't do it, but you're right. They kind of make a half joke here in having him, because he could have waited till the guy got it to the shore, but I guess he figured his best shot was to drown him. And yes, Jocelyn, we know it's not a shock that she would be killed in the same attack. We remember the melodramatic way she came running after the ray of the first movie shot the guy through the milk carton. It's less emotionally impacting because they didn't have a lot of time together. Yeah, this is this is the one thing that I don't think hits as hard as the last one. Yeah, Vera Farmiga, great actress, but she just hasn't established that connection. And I don't know how you would with a character that that's this cold. I don't want flashbacks to their summer of love. So his snake bite and her sucking out the poison. Yeah, if that's the sacrifice that has to be made to keep the level of plausibility that they're going for, do it. I don't need to love her to know that it's a terrible thing that he's drowning her. Yeah, just that he's killing what I think is they never put it in him that he would forget. It was a big thing. Well, no, I guess it was. They said that in the thing, as you will never remember anything, even this, when they were checking up on his implant, giving him a tune-up. So he's not supposed to remember he did this. I don't know that he does remember that he did this, but keep in mind, he doesn't remember getting the heroics to earn the medal either, but the fact is the press starts reporting on it. We we have this scene where Marco is getting off the train and it's all over the news about this senator getting murdered. When they finally talk, he's going to be like, tell me what happened because I don't know. But he's tearing up. So he does know. Like He he, he just needs someone to confirm his, his worst feelings about what he does when he zones out. And Demi has a, he has a trick that he uses in a lot of movies. He did it a lot in Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia. He'll put the camera really close to someone's face and then just start like tilting it. And it's an extreme close up that can feel really jarring, but it also really allows the actor to transmit what's going on internally in sometimes powerful ways. He does that here with both Denzel and Liev. And this is where Denzel is going to confront Rosie. Yeah, he attacks her and she reveals, hey, I'm a fed. What a way to wake up. Like someone's <laughs> hands around your throat. I was worried for her. But yeah, she's got a gun. And her name's not Rosie. Right. Ellen. I had to put both names in my notes because I'd really come to know her as Rosie. Yeah, I kept writing her down as Rosie for the rest of the film. Yeah, we get it. It's Kimberly Elise. Jimmy worked with her in Beloved. She had the less showy role. But uh Good actress here. Doesn't have a whole lot of emotional range to display here, but I love the fact that Denzel just puts it to her. Help me or shoot me. She's going to do both in the climax. She's going to actually <laughs> help him by shooting him in kind of a twist on the climax that we've come to know. And I do think that they've calibrated this ending so that it makes a whole lot more sense uh, than the one from the original. Yeah, because now it's election day. We're going to see Shaw go and cast his ballot. Uh, I've never got to use one of those big like punch machines. In California, you just like use a little ink blot and to put over a dot, like a Scantron test. We used to do punch machines in Illinois, and now we have Scantron. We still don't have those futuristic touch screens. <laughs> yeah, and inside the polling booth is a note saying, come meet me upstairs in a clandestine classroom. And I'm going to tell you that, yes, uh, you did kill the senator. Yes, you did kill Jocelyn. You're going to tell me what they've programmed you to do. And then we're going to go tell the feds and it'll all get solved. Except he gets a phone call from mom and it's not for Ray. 
it's for Ben. Yeah, I love that. Like, when he hands the phone over to Marco, I'm like, I knew it! Like, here we go. He's gonna be given the order. It does make sense. Once we knew that Shaw was the vice presidential candidate, not his father... Well, Shaw can't be waiting in the wings to shoot the president, so how is it going to work? And when you saw the flashback after the electroshock, you saw Shaw killed one person, but Marco killed another. And so that should really make this less of a shock. I do have to ask, though, what is Eleanor, Meryl Streep's character, what is her motivation here? Like, Angela Lansbury, she was... uh a communist but then she also had this personal vendetta because they used her son that i thought was really interesting but i get it you're you're a communist you want the communists to take over america and you're gonna go with this plot eleanor in this one i don't know she just she just wants to get rich maybe she holds a lot of stock with manchurian global like i don't really get why she's so invested in this oh i think it's really easy i think it's even easier after we see hillary clinton losing in 2016 there's a glass ceiling and i hit it My political career only went so far and my husband failed. Maybe I whacked him or maybe he died of other reasons, but he didn't get to the White House. And I want that White House. I want you to save our country in her hour of greatest need is what she says. And so she's almost describing it like being ravished. Like it's almost like, again, a sexual conquest for her. I think that the the idea of power, the White House... And her son is just sort of this incestual stew. That would have been really forward thinking, though, to like get involved with this corporation. Why, like, why her son's still a kid so they can start brainwashing? I don't know. It, it's muddy to me. I think it's why she had the kid. I think that she was like, <laughs> I want a kid because that will help me do it. I mean, and she got Noel, the geneticist, to make sure it was a boy so he wouldn't <laughs> hit that glass ceiling again. There's a lot of things here. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a movie, and it's you know, it's ass certain improbabilities. I'm glad to say this probably could never happen exactly like this. But this incestuous scene where she's toweling him off and giving him that kiss, it didn't mean make me think a little bit about Trump in the way that he's described Ivanka. Like, I did like go, oh, yeah, we've, we've seen this now in politics. Yeah, if she wasn't his daughter, he'd date her. I'm not hating political parties. It was a quote. Just a quote! Just a quote! <laughs> Be aware that that was said. I think it's important to know if you are a fan. But here, they have kind of a bit more of a motherly kiss, and then they, like, go in for the romantic kiss and pause. And then cut away. Uh Uh-huh. So did they? Probably. Oh, yeah. To me, it's always been off screen, but a subtext of this movie is that sexual activity is the conditioning that Jocelyn was the one moment where he broke and that the mother has used her domineering sense and being the only, you know, it it gets Freudian. But yeah, I kind of like the idea that maybe this is him losing his virginity. Well, he dated Jocelyn and he said he hadn't dated anyone seriously. I took that to mean there were hookups. No, I take it to mean that like it didn't get very serious and she wasn't very hung up on him because she wasn't thinking about him like that. But we think that way because we know that the characters in the original movie did hook up. So it's a gray area in this movie that we can speculate all night on. It's just not explored uh, in the way that it was in the original. But again, this is much cleaner to have Marco be the one who's going to assassinate the president-elect. So Shaw can rise to power instead of having Shaw do it. So you we go to, what, election night? They've won and they're at the victory party now. And I just love 
the choreography. This feels so true. This is where the movie becomes funny to me because the coordinated way that they're like, I'm like, what is that communist red star doing on the ground? (laughs) Oh, wait, it's a mark. They've all got to hit these marks. There's these computer graphics and a Mount Rushmore sculpture. And I cracked up at that Mount Rushmore because Arthur and Shaw have put their faces. They beat you to it, Trump. (laughs) I know Trump wants to be on Mount Rushmore, but these two actually beat him to it, at least with Photoshop. I I thought the same thing. Smoke fountains of Wayne, which reminds me of the way Buttigieg used High Hopes Panic at the Disco, like this pop punk song. Like it all feels so hip. And again, that was what Ray promised was I'm going to bring you youthful energy into this old man party. Uh, and again, it's just, it's glorious to see how calculated these kinds of moments, what should be a total surprise, who has been elected president feels like a foregone conclusion that everyone has thought about for every step of the way to the podium. I think it's hilarious that this whole conspiracy is overthrown because Shaw missed his mark. But it's intentional. He he knows what's going on. But yeah, it's just a simple standing in the way of. And, and Rosie is very observant. Like Shaw keeps like looking up to where Marco is and like nodding. Obviously, like they came up with some plot that they didn't show us in this film. But like Rosie's like, oh, he's looking up to the corner. Let me run up there. That's where Marco is. It makes more sense than what whatever Frank Sinatra saw in the dark. Yeah, I didn't understand how he found Shaw in that film either. <laughs> yeah. Again, what what's shocking is when she gets there, he doesn't blow his brains out. She shoots him. She's like, all right, we got to get, we got this cleaned up. Like now that you've shot Meryl Streep and Leah Schreiber and knocked down every flag up on stage and no one even notices because they're too busy doing their choreographed dance. So with that shooting of the... Shaw's though, I mean, had his mind control broken then because he was ordered to kill the president and that's the person he kept targeting. Shaw was looking up at him, but I mean, was it a conscious choice yes. or a subconscious choice to kill the Shaw's? It had to be. Shaw and Marco were in on it. They knew they were going to do this somehow. I don't know how they broke the programming to come up with this plot. That's never shown. Well, no, they didn't together right? because Marco kept targeting the president. Shaw's nodding at him like, take the shot, kill us. Well, here's what we know. Like, they're in a classroom together. The phone rings. They're triggered. But they've also had implants bitten out of them. And they've, you know, been exposed to some level of truth. So how much they can't control and how much they have to follow their programming and how much they have free will remains a nebulous question that... Probably the original movie did a little bit better. I mean, it was Frank Sinatra holding up a deck of Queen of Diamonds, but we understood (laughs) very clearly he broke the guy. Here, it's a bit of a mystery as to why, but the way that the actors are coming across, it's very clear to me that Ray is saying, I'm not going to let you kill the president. I'm going to have you kill my mother, and I've got no reason to live either. He he wants it all taken out. He does not want to be controlled by corporate America. He's the only politician who doesn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we see the deep state covering this all up. Like, they're going to Photoshop the surveillance footage. It's not Marco. Now it's Klaus Bachmann and some known terrorist. Who was Klaus Bachmann? No, this is the first time we're hearing about it in this plot. Yeah. We are seeing Lawrence Tokar, who was the Brit in the vehicle in 1991. The contractor, yeah. Yeah, he was somehow found as well. So it's all coming apart. We cut back to Dean Stockwell and the other people in their office freaking out. I thought you were going to say we cut back to Enron for some reason. <laughs> 
I mean, that, that's that's who they partly are. But it's, it all seems a little too clean to me. Like, uh, you know, that last film, the original, where they do this whole eulogy to try to give it a happy ending, I thought was much darker than, like, this one thing explodes Manchurian Global and the jig is up. Yeah, I mean, they have fingers in other pies. This wasn't their only plot. They're not going to be brought down by this. They're shamed by this. They're exposed in the media saying, you have a terrorist on your payroll. Okay, sure. We got, they're all are. <laughs> but all right, we'll deal with this bad press and then we'll destroy act and and we'll see what we can do in four more years i don't know enron was brought down there is a chance manchurian could be brought down i mean no one like none of the head the heads like served serious jail time or jail time at all like they never gave money back to all the grandmas they stole and their 401ks crash like no no the people are safe but they may have to start a new company yeah they'll just enron 2.0 yeah and probably will and does that is that a happy ending that the bad guys can just start off from scratch again (laughs) my question with this ending arnie you said that this is what, the FBI back in the Middle East digging up the lab where they are bra- I took this ending so different because, I don't know, all of a sudden they're on this island. Marco seems clearly crazy to me at this point. Like, he's putting the Medal of Honor and this picture in the ocean as, I guess, to wash it away, just like he was brainwashed. It's symbolic. But you see all these people, like, I don't know, to me, they look like they were just shuffling around in the background. Maybe they were just FBI agents, like, looking, to, uh, you know, for the Ark of the Covenant back there. But I'm like, oh, are those, like, other soldiers that were brainwashed? and they've all just like lost their minds now like is this like the island from the prisoner (laughs) where they've all just gone crazy and and this is their fate like i i went real dark i thought it was a way to very much translate to people that might have been confused by some of the shenanigans that it's kind of a happy ending at least in the sense that he gets the girl maybe because i didn't want that happy ending that i was looking for something darker he gets the girl they're on a beach He's alive and the truth is being exposed. He doesn't look well, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Believe me. It's, a, you know, it's it's not a musical here, but I do feel like, <laughs> yes, it's maybe not quite as cynical as the original movie in the fact that, well, I guess the Marco in that one went and got to have a happy life as well. There is a chance that this vet might be able to have some kind of life for himself, letting go of the past. As we see him release that photo of his platoon out into the ocean waters, to me, that's a chance of of letting that fall into the subconscious and create a new identity. While the people behind him are taking the technology and going to use it for other ill means. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Manchurian Candidate 2.0? Jacob. It's always interesting when we do these, like, an original and then a remake, especially when they're both first-time views for me, because I'm seeing what the original is, and then that brings certain expectations in to the remake. Like, with I Am Legend, Will Smith, that, that was the first one I ever saw of those three different versions that we did a retrospective on. I wasn't thinking of how awesome Charlton Heston was chomping on a cigar, shooting a machine gun in a sports car, like, when I <laughs> watched I Am Legend with Will Smith. that That's, like, why I didn't like the Will Smith one, because I was trying to compare it. Like, I had my own reasons, because I was the only thing that had been introduced to me but then like we've done the hills have eyes and last house on the left recently and you know i had problems with those remakes because they just they weren't different enough they didn't like why did they exist if you're just going to do the same thing so i appreciate that with this film because my question was is it just gonna be like saddam hussein brainwashing troops like uh, that doesn't sound great like how are they gonna update this story for 2004 and i thought they did that really well by not making it again a state actor but a, a state faceless corporation because that's definitely who I, I feel is like 
pulling the strings and controlling things more now than really any one country is like, yeah, beware of those corporations and to tap into that. Again, there, there was maybe people that were real on top of Dick Cheney and, and George Bush and all that knew about Halliburton. But I, I feel like this was really got in on the on the ground floor with that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, contractors going and getting rich with these contracts to rebuild everything re blew up in another country. Like, I think this updates the Manchurian Candidate story really well for the time it was made. And I liked the changes that a lot of the changes that they make. They did some I don't like Angela Lansbury's character. Not as good here. Like, I don't really get her motivation. But the fact that Rosie now matters, there's a reason for her to be here. That's great. That Marco isn't just this clean cut Sinatra character that he is crazy, that I am questioning him so much throughout the story. I really like that. There are more technical aspects. Like, again, if I had just seen this first. How would this come across? Because I, I do feel more disoriented through this because of the editing. Like, why is Delp all of a sudden a character in this film? Like, I don't know. But again, maybe I'm supposed to feel confused. Ultimately, like, I think Yen Lo is right. You got to have a little bit of sense of humor. And, and this comes off as a little dry. But again, I like a lot of the changes they made. And I, I thought they adapted it for 2004 really well. So, yeah, definitely, you know, watch both of them. This is a recommend. Stewart. Yeah, here it was. I thought I was going to have that controversial opinion because I feel like this movie is neither better nor worse than the Frankenheimer classic. I feel like it it does some things better and in some things it sacrifices the entertainment value and some of that visual innovation that that Frankenheimer introduced. And that's okay. That, that you're right. That is why you want to have the experience again. Is that not that it's going to redo what you love, but it's going to look at things that weren't done in the past and do them better. And so they complement each other rather than compete for one another. I think that this movie, of its many assets, has better acting. Denzel's Marco is much more important to the story, and Denzel can hold our attention when many people would present a Marco, Frank Sinatra among them, that wouldn't be able to do it, frankly. And Lee of Schreiber, even more so. That character is so hard to understand, and my sympathies always align with him, in part because he doesn't jump in a lake. And Rosie, my God, <laughs> what a fix they've done for Rosie. So I recognize it's slow moving and I recognize that that comedy and that, that wit, that breakfast that Tiffany's screenwriter had in there, totally gone from here. Okay, so go watch the original when you want to experience that. But I am going to argue that this movie has an intensity and a dark spirit that matches the original cynical dark comedy. And so I think that that's what you want when you remake a movie. They've done a very solid job. And I'm glad, Jacob, you appreciated that. Arnie, what'd you think? Well, I have to agree with you on the acting being a major upgrade. I think that every single person in this cast does a phenomenal job, even down to the bit parts. And again, a lot of actors I named at the beginning who I like. You mentioned Liev. The scene where he and Denzel are having their final conversation in that classroom, and Liev's eyes get all red and things, I don't know, maybe he stared at an onion for five minutes before shooting that scene, but it really sold it to me. I really think, yeah, this was his movie emotionally, even though Denzel had the most screen time and Meryl has the most statues. But beyond that, I feel that this one's tone works better for the political times of the 21st century. Maybe even back, you know, with the Red Scare, a lot of paranoia against other parties and deep state 
is communism that much different from what the deep state is? You know, it, it, I think there were some fantastical ideas of who was communist and communist plots back then. And now we have Pizzagate. So I think that the fact that they've removed the humor actually makes this work well. I mean, this came out in an election year. We're reviewing this in an election year. And I don't have much of a sense of humor about elections right now. <laughs> but... I think that the thriller nature of this really works. And, you know, at two hours and 15 minutes, this isn't an extended cut of a Lord of the Rings movie. It's not short, but I didn't feel the time. It just went right through because of the performers here. And overall, I think that they've tightened up things from the original and made it more relevant and brought in better actors. I like this one more than the last one, and I recommended the last one. So Mm -hmm. this one's a really solid recommend. Plus, I dare you to name another movie that has Fab Five Freddy as a political pundit. <laughs> I love all the cameos <laughs> in there. Yeah, it was it was good fun to see. Yeah, so much detail work done in here. But Fab Five Freddy, yeah, I saw him. It made me smile. <laughs> he hadn't done such a small cameo since Blondie's Rapture. <laughs> yeah, could it be remade again? I I absolutely think in some ways it's being done in real life. I mean, like we're living through it in some ways. <laughs> like. I was thinking the exact same thing. The next remake is going to be a live action role play. Yeah. Or yeah. Just, you know, a biopic about people right now. I mean, I just feel like, yes, corporate America and the the control that it has over politics, uh, this debate rages. And I feel like both movies were at the forefront of something that has mushroom ballooned, metastasized, however you want to categorize it. I definitely feel like both of these movies are important, and I'm glad we covered them. I feel like this was the time to cover Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, the second one made it all worth it. The first one I recommended, but I wasn't in love with, but... What? That first one is great. Like, that's the one I would go back to. They both have great scenes. I mean, just think about that, like, scene with the the ladies' club and the way that they had that revolving set. Oh, brilliant. Oh, no, that was a really good scene. But overall, that film just didn't work overall. It had so many problems with it that it balanced out the things that really did great. If you watch one, I say watch this one, and don't watch them back-to-back, because I think watching the original messed with my first rewatch of this one. Hmm, okay. Well, as long as you watch them both. Again, I don't. I wouldn't take away what the first movie did, but I also wouldn't dismiss this movie as saying, oh, you can't remake a classic. You can. They did. They did a good job. And we're not done with political paranoia either. If you become a now-playing patron this month, it has been requested, and we are answering the call. JFK's assassination is a week from this Sunday. Well, the anniversary of it. They're not killing him again. That's right. Good point. <laughs> but yes, it will have been 57 years since that tragic day. And so we've decided to return to a movie that is almost 30 years old. Oliver Stone's JFK. That took a very controversial stance on what occurred on November 22nd, 1963. Three weeks of sniper guns pointed at presidents. We're going to get put on a list. (laughs) But in the meantime, we need to wrap up the Cloverfield controversies and... Oh, if we must. (laughs) Yes, Cloverfield Paradox is this Friday. And that's available to our platinum donors in our donation drive. You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast forward slash donate. And thank you so much for your support. It's supporters and patrons that are able to keep us going. And if you're a patron, you get an extra helping this month. So there's actually two patron-exclusive shows if you sign up. 
Again, all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And while you're at our website, sign up for the In Focus newsletter. Jason's been doing a really good job with that. We gave away 10 copies of the latest Tremors film, Shrieker Island, through that. He does polls. He recently did a ranking of all the Halloween movies. Everybody behind the mic and behind the scenes on Now Playing contributes to that newsletter. When you're at our site, just click on subscribe and you can sign up right there for the newsletter and get the latest movie news and Now Playing news every Friday. So what are we doing next week? It's November. It's it's something Thanksgiving-y? Yeah, like witches. The craft. I think that would be perfect, wouldn't it? <laughs> Halloween's past. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm saying we're doing it for some reason. Why are we doing witches? 1996 teen witch comedy? What is it? A horror movie? I I don't really know much about this film, but we are covering it because it's got a sequel that just came out. Surprise. We couldn't adjust our schedule in time to get it out any earlier. Halloween might have made a little bit more sense, but hey, we're going to get the craft next week. But hey, it's a new movie. You don't get many of those in 2020. <laughs> I know. I'm like anything I can cling on to. In 2019, we would never be reviewing The Craft. <laughs> <laughs> right. These days, I'm like, why didn't we review The Hunt? <laughs> anything. <laughs> so, yes, we're going to go back into the 90s with Feruza Balk and Nev Campbell next week. So that the week after, we can go to The Craft Legacy, a brand new streaming, you don't have to go to a movie theater, a streaming sequel. You still got to pay those movie theater prices, though, to stream it. More expensive as of the time of this recording. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that film. I haven't seen it since the 90s. So until next time, the wires have been pulled. They can't touch you anymore. You're free. You are still alive. That's the good news. What's the bad news? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. You may go. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Bea, I thought you were magnificent tonight. And so did all the network campaign experts. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. I'm very glad to hear that, sir. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. You couldn't have stopped them. The army couldn't have stopped them. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Help me. Help me. Shoot me. Help me or shoot. Make a decision. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. 
Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. All right. Now let's start unlocking a few doors. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. They can make me do anything, Ben, can't they? Anything. Find the details on our website. Cash is king, Marco. Cash is king. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Darling, something very important has come up. There is something you have to do. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Are you following me? I am. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. People adore you. They crave your company. And yet here you are, holed up as if you were some sort of emotionally challenged individual like your father. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Congratulations, son. How do you feel? Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. I served them. I fought for them. And they paid me back by taking your soul away from you. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Speech is short, but it's the most rousing speech I've ever read. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Oh, God, where are all the men anymore? My father, Tyler Prentice, never asked, is this okay, is this okay? He just did what needed to be done. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Have you noticed that the human race is divided into two distinct and irreconcilable groups? Those who walk into rooms and automatically turn television sets on, and those who walk into rooms and automatically turn them off. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Stop talking like an expert all of a sudden and get out there and say what you're supposed to say. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You may put the cards away now. Goodbye,
it's pretty veteran favorable, although I have to say, I gave you some guff about picking an election movie with last week's. This one feels far more electron. This one feels, this one feels more, this one feels far more election, election, I cannot say this. Sergeant Raymond Shaw returned from the first Gulf War a hero. Shaw, played by, not Frank Sinatra. Oh, Shaw. Oh, Liev Schreiber. Shaw, Liev Schreiber. Yeah, Liev Schreiber. Okay, I'm making sure I'm looking at the right plot summary because I said played by Lawrence Harvey. No. <laughs> that is not correct. <laughs> <laughs> he was dead. I just I want to put it out there. I'm no Black Eyed Peas fan, but this Credence cover by Wyclef, Fortunate Son, really good. Like a really good, hard-hitting way to start this movie. Wycliff Gene isn't a Black Eyed Pea. Oh, he was a Fuji. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that explains it. I, I was like looking this up because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Black Eyed Peas. That explains why he's good. <laughs> well, yeah, why is this so good? <laughs> All right, blooper. <laughs> I'm like, I have never liked Black Eyed Peas. This is like a credible song. Okay. And I love Black Eyed Peas. And I'm like, I never heard of Wycliffe Gene being in the band, but I know it had a few lineups. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Who was in Who was in Black Eyed Peas? Besides Fergie, I don't know. Will I am Fergie. Uh, there's that uh, Apple Dap. I think his name is. I'd hope I didn't confuse Wyclef with Apple Dap. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Dap. All right. I'll say it again. <laughs> it, it, oh, it's yeah. It's Apple. It's app Apple D Dap. It's Apple D App and Taboo. It doesn't matter. I ain't never gonna say his name again. <laughs> I mean, what big anti-Gulf War song was there? I, I feel like protest songs have gone out of vogue. Blame It on the Rain by Millie Vanilli. <laughs> was that a protest song? Uh, no. It was to me. There was a parody, <laughs> Blame It on Hussein. Blame it on Hussein. Oh, jeez. For the <laughs> price of oil. There you go. <laughs> That was actually, I think, a joke from In Living Color. Probably. <laughs> I was watching a lot of that at that time. <laughs> but it was how Google looked and worked in 2004, where all your results were blue and underlined. <laughs> yeah, you're right. God, that was pre-Google, wasn't it? It was just the early days. Well, I, I guess I meant pre-my use of Google. Like, I wouldn't have been Googling things at that time. What was it? Ask Jeeves? Well, there was Yahoo <laughs> and Webcrawler were the big ones. There we go. Alta Vista, Lycos. I remember all those early search engines. <laughs> there it is. It's all coming back to me now. Shout out for our Gen X peeps who remember that shit. 